You're listening to Radio Research Forum on SOAS Radio. David Fell is a reader in comparative politics in our Department of Politics and International Studies, as well as director of the SOAS Centre of Taiwan Studies. As one of SOAS's experts in Taiwanese politics, today he'll be talking about his new book, Taiwan's Green Parties, and his research journey and experience. David has just completed his Spring 2021 World Book Tour titled Taiwan's Green Parties, Alternative Politics in Taiwan. A link to the book can be found on the SOAS Radio SoundCloud page. He is interviewed by Leon Kuntz, a PhD candidate in our Department of Politics and International Studies, whose thesis is titled Deliberative Democracy and Social Movements in Taiwan and Hong Kong. Hello, my name is Leon Kunz. I'm a PhD candidate at SOAS, and for my thesis, I did lots of interviews with activists in Taiwan and Hong Kong. But today it's my pleasure to interview my second PhD supervisor, David Fell. Hi, David. Hi there. Good to see you, Leon. Good to see you. We'll be talking about your fascinating new book, Taiwan's Green Parties, especially the research and writing process behind it. And the hope is that this can be of use to others like me, who've not yet published a book but also to academics who are thinking about publishing their second research monograph. But before we start, could you please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to study Taiwan? Okay, thanks, uh, Leon. So I first became interested in Taiwan as an undergraduate student doing uh, language studies in Taiwan itself. So that gave me my first taste of a Taiwanese election back in 1989. And then I lived in Taiwan for much of the uh, 1990s as a, as a language teacher. So I was in Taiwan during that transition to democratization. So during that time, I was starting to think about what could I do as a, as a PhD project. And I ended up coming back to the UK and doing a PhD looking at Taiwanese political parties in that first decade of multi-party politics. So it was quite a, a, um, a long process, but it was a very kind of clear personal link between me and, and Taiwan. And then I've stayed at SOAS since I graduated, uh, working in the politics department uh, here at SOAS and also running the Taiwan Center at SOAS. Great. And could you briefly introduce your new book, Yes. So the new book just came out in March of 2021. So it's called Taiwan's Green Parties, Alternative Politics in Taiwan. And what I try and do in the book is to tell the history of the uh, Taiwan Green Parties since the uh, their foundation in the uh, mid 19 Uh, 90s. So it's the first book-length um, study of an Asian Green Party. And the way I do this is to tell the story through a number of big questions, such as who, how, so what, and why. So I'm looking at questions such as uh, who have led the party? What kind of people have supported the party? Uh, how has the party evolved over time, ideologically and organizationally? The so what questions look at the electoral impact of the party, but also the party's evolution in terms of international engagement. And then the three why questions look at party formation, how we explain patterns of party change, and how we explain party electoral success and, and failure. 
Great. That was such a fascinating read for me, not just because of my own interest in, in Taiwanese politics and, and movement parties, but also because I'm German and currently speaking to you from Berlin, where the Green Party has actually seen surprising successes in polling. So they, they might actually succeed Angela Merkel, or so they hope, at least head-to-head uh, -head with the Christian Democrats now which is quite the contrast to the experience of the Green Party in Taiwan, I suppose. Yeah, um, I think you're, you're, you're right. I think that because you've also been looking at issues related to Taiwanese civil society, I, can, I think that as anyone who studied Taiwan's party system and also civil society over the last couple of decades, uh, I think the book should be quite interesting because it's telling that, that story from a quite a, a different angle. And it's looking at quite a long time period for something like 24, 25 uh, years. So it's looking at time period, kind of time series analysis. And, and the other thing that I, I wanted mm -hmm. to uh, follow up on was the, the German case that you, you mentioned, because I think that for Green Parties internationally, the German Green Party is often seen as a kind of a model. And Green activists often talked about the, the German case. And one or two of the, of the activists that feature in the book did have quite extensive German experience. So they were hoping to kind of bring that into the, uh, uh, the Taiwan case, but it wasn't smooth sailing. And I wanted to follow up on what you said about your research questions, because one of the aims of our conversation is to talk about sort of the thinking and planning process behind writing this book. So how did you come up with the research questions and did they evolve over time? Was it easier? I mean, that's one of the biggest challenge, I guess, for PhD candidates always to find a research question. Was it easier for you with the second research monograph? Yes. Uh, I mean, that's a, it's a great question. I think a, a really big challenge for academics is um, how you approach that second PhD style book. And it becomes very difficult when you become overwhelmed with teaching and administration pressures. And I think that's one of the reasons why it took me uh, so long to actually publish this second research uh, monograph, because my first book came out of my uh, my PhD. And in many ways, the book itself is quite different from the, the similarities and differences with the, uh, the PhD. The PhD was much more focused on a more narrow set of questions. It was really focused on on three big questions of uh, how, why, and, and so what. This book also does have those, uh, those questions, but it's a little bit more ambitious. In other words, it's going for things like the, the who question and looking more at how we explain success and, and failure. And to respond to the other uh, element of your, of your question, it definitely did evolve over time. With a PhD, we often start out with a kind of a master plan in, in year one. This book took me about eight years to, to finish, and there definitely wasn't a master plan. It wasn't until probably a couple of months before I actually started writing that I really had a clear plan in terms of what was going to be the, uh, the chapter structure. To a certain extent, though, when we study party politics, one of the things that makes it a little bit easier with the research design is that we have a number of questions that we basically are expected to address. I think that did help me. In other words, we're expected to address the question of how do we measure party change? How do we explain party change? How do we explain party uh, success and, uh, and failure? So to a certain extent, then I could kind of build on what other people had done internationally on small parties and then try to fit that kind of design onto the 
uh, onto the Taiwan case. But I think you're right that it was something that uh, evolved over time. And it really took me a, a long time to work out exactly what the design of the chapters should be. And strangely enough, it came to me on a EasyJet flight, maybe because there was no <laughs> screen. I didn't have a, um, a book in front of me. And I just started thinking about the, uh, the project. I was going to take a kind of a, a, a week off. And after, I think it was a two-hour flight, I think I had it. I, I knew the, um, the structure. And then I was very excited to actually get a pen and paper and then start kind of uh, mind mapping out uh, the plan. And the eventual book structure is probably about 75% of that plan that came up on that EasyJet flight. Oh, wow. <laughs> But it took me That's seven fantastic. years to get to get there, and then when it actually came down to it, it was just a a couple of hours of kind of thinking that uh, was allowed me to make that kind of breakthrough. What first sparked your interest in Taiwan's green parties? Yes. I mean, that's a really interesting question because, um, I mean, I became interested in Taiwan small parties from my very first trip to Taiwan when I could see the attempts by leftist parties to get into Taiwan's parliament. They weren't particularly successful, but that kind of caught my attention. And in my first book, Party Politics in Taiwan, I did also look at one small party, the Taiwan New Party. And I was quite interested to see the way that the decision-making within that small party was so different from the decision-making in large parties, the way that often ideology or ideological purity was more important than election victories. Um, so I had that interest in in small parties from the uh, the first book, and and I did write start after my PhD. I started writing a couple of pieces on Taiwanese small parties, and in one of those pieces, I did briefly touch upon the uh, the Taiwan Green Party. But that wasn't really enough to actually spend eight years on on a project like this. So the key, I guess, the mm -hmm. turning point was a SOAS student. Uh, who was studying anthropology at, at SOAS. And even before, before she graduated, she, was, she stood in a national parliamentary election in, in January of 2012 uh, without much preparation. So that I found really quite interesting, the fact that you could go from not actually graduating to standing for, uh, for parliament. And uh, later on that year, um, she Yuanyu became the co-convener of the Taiwan Green Party, and she asked me if I'd be interested in doing some uh, research on the on the party. So it was really a kind of a quite accidental. And what I did then in the autumn of of twenty twelve was to put together some plans for a couple of focus groups where we would get Green Party candidates, leaders of the previous um, 15 years to talk about uh, their experiences of running the party and of elections. And I started then working with a, a Taiwanese uh, scholar who was also a former Green Party candidate and, uh, and leader. So I think those initial focus groups that we ran in December of 2012 were really critical. That really convinced me that this was a great project. I wasn't sure it was going to be a book at that stage, but those first focus groups were to be a, a really big asset when I came to actually writing the, the book, what would it be six or seven years uh, later. So again, it was really accidental. And why did you decide to write a book on the Green Parties rather than publish several more journal articles or another edited volume? So I know you've written, uh, edited a few of those as well. 
Yes. I, I think in many ways, edited volumes have been one of the reasons why it took me so long to actually finish uh, this book, because I was involved in, in about four or five edited volumes during the period that I was uh, working on the, uh, the Green Party's book. But I think a book for an academic is something very, very special. We can only do a few books in our academic careers. So it has to be something that you feel really passionate about, as I think with a, uh, with a PhD. And a book gives you the chance to really go into much more depth than you can in a, let's say, a, a journal article. And, and I think I really enjoy the depth of analysis that I could go into. And I, and I went a little bit I think I went a little bit over the top in in this book because eventually I think it came to about 130,000 words, which was a bit too much for the publisher. And I do sometimes wonder how a a PhD examiner would react to this this book. If I was submitting as a PhD, I think I probably would get major revisions uh, because I'd I'd be... uh, I think I'd be asked to kind of focus a bit more and also cut down the uh, the uh, the word uh, length. But a, f- a final thing I would add to your, your question there is that during the process of doing this research, I did start off with I did a, a journal article um, in the middle and also a, a couple of book chapters uh, as well. So that kind of allowed me to kind of start getting feedback on the on the project. Um, in those three publications, I was working with co-authors. So I was working with a, um, a Taiwanese scholar, Peng Yanwen, who was a former leader and also uh, of the party and also a, a scholar. So that was one way I was getting uh, feedback. And, and another chapter, book chapter, came out with one of my, my other PhD students, Tommy Kwan. So I was getting that kind of feedback. But my sense was that the kind of ri- really rich data that I had wasn't... Um, I couldn't really do justice to that data in the, those kind of short pieces. There was so much um, more to uh, tell. There's so much kind of rich uh, data. So that was why I think I at, probably about in the middle of the project, I was kind of convinced that it had to be a book. But it was a, then a matter of finding the time to turn this uh, into a book. And that is a really big challenge. So how did you find the time? And did you have any strategies other than uh, writing on, on easy jet flights? Uh, do you have a particular writing routine? Or do you block out time? I think that could be interesting for our audience. Yes, that was the, the challenge. I think originally my plan was to try to make 2016 as the cutoff point. So Taiwan has national elections every every four years. So uh, I started the project in 2012, and then the aim was to make 2016 the uh, the final election to be to be examined. But other things kind of kind of kept cropping up. Uh, second edition of my second book, edited volumes, teaching pressure. So I was really lucky that in the autumn of uh, let me see, autumn of 2019, I had a sabbatical. I had one term uh, research leave. So that gave me a bit of space. Um, and I had to kind of get a couple of other things out of the, the way. So uh, I really, the actual writing was much more intensive than for the PhD. Uh, the PhD kind of writing process probably lasted about two years. In, in this case, though, it was much smoother once I had the structure, the EasyJet uh, structure. But it really meant kind of having blocks of time and trying just to put everything else uh, aside, which wasn't easy. So I probably maybe I would say that I was devoting about four or five days a week during that intensive period to uh, to writing the uh, the book and and then what I would do then would be then before I started writing I would have a first I would have a map of the each of the chapter I'm writing and then a map of each section 
in that in that chapter and i was kind of working with these kind of big sketch pads to kind of map out how i was going to structure the uh, the chapter and the sections what interview data and what kind of material i was going to bring in to support the uh, the analysis so planning i think was really uh, important and that meant that it was definitely much smoother so i probably had about a chunk of about 8 weeks and for november december 2019 and then a chunk in uh, the easter break so um, and then post review, I had another chunk of writing the final chapters and then the final uh, writing. So overall, then once I had the structure, it was much smoother. But I think the key there was getting the the structure planned and planned in real kind of detail. And you mentioned that the book or the manuscript ended up being a tad too long for your editors. Was there anything you had to leave out, or were you able to convince them to? include all the rich detail that you wanted to include because my experience writing the phd thesis was that i was worried it could get way too long and then i edited down my thesis to where it ended up being eighty-six thousand words so i had like fourteen thousand more words uh, that i thought i probably should have used so i kind of wish it was longer <laughs> yes that i was quite nervous when i um, uh, submitted the uh, uh, the final uh, version because i think the version i sent to review which was missing uh, the final two chapters was i think was probably about uh, 90,000 uh, words and then when i submitted the final version it was 130,000 uh, but i guess maybe with a book we have a little bit more uh, leeway uh, there i mean whether or not if affected the price i'm not sure but yeah i was quite uh, relieved i think i would have found it quite difficult cutting down any more so i was i guess i was fortunate on on that uh, on that respect but i'm glad because i really want to include those those details and i and i'm pretty sure that if i didn't have that kind of target in mind it probably could have been um much longer let's talk about motivation which you already mentioned and passion and uh in the acknowledgement section to the book you actually reveal that your wife found you talking about taiwan's green party in your sleep so i'm guessing that motivation wasn't really an issue but did you sometimes have these ups and downs or was your did you manage to sustain a high degree of motivation throughout the eight years and what were your strategies to do so Mm, I think it's a, it's a great question. And I think I had had the experience of a failed uh, research monograph that I basically, as soon as I finished my PhD, I started, actually, I can remember the, the day I, I um, submitted the, um, the final manuscript of the, of the book. And once I'd done that, that afternoon, I went out and started doing my first interviews for the new, uh, new project. And, and I worked on that project for about five uh, years and i got a few kind of journal articles out of of that project but i was finding it difficult uh, turning into a um, a book manuscript and, and i eventually uh, ended up putting that aside and, and so my second book turned out to be a more of a textbook that was a kind of overview of taiwan's government and uh, and politics so i did have that in the back of my mind the fact that i had that experience of not completing a book project. So I think that kind of motivated uh, motivated me to keep kind of keep going. But I think also, I think as with a PhD, and I think you probably understand this, that when you really kind of get into a, a, a project, I think that can be really uh, motivating. When you're dealing with really kind of passionate and idealistic respondents, 
um, and you kind of see the kind of sacrifices that uh, these people are making for the uh, the things that they believe in in terms of social and environmental justice. I think that is quite uh, motivating. Wanting to kind of get that story out to both Taiwan and, and kind of broader audiences. But of course, I think you're right that it's very easy for us as academics to uh, lose focus because we have so many competing uh, demands. But I guess I've I've got I've felt that kind of pressure of needing to get that second uh, research monograph done as something that I had I felt I had to do for kind of career progression. So there were multiple things that were uh, that were pushing me to kind of get this get this done. I kind of sound almost like uh, I'm talking about Brexit Brexit there. So yeah, I think there were multiple things that were pushing me in this in this direction. Of course, yeah, I did have doubts, and I think a lot of us do have doubts about whether this is uh, this can be done within this kind of time frame. And kind of reflecting back on on the critical year of 2020. In some ways, I was a little bit fortunate that COVID messed up a lot of my my travel plans because uh, I had a, a number of trips during the Easter break and they all got kind of cancelled. I think that did help me with the final kind of pre-review uh, uh, submission. I guess following up on the question about how you made time to write the book, one of my experiences is that I really need hard deadlines to finish projects and make difficult decisions about you know the writing and editing of a piece. And for this research monograph, I'm assuming that you didn't have an institutionally set hard deadline as for a thesis. So did you set your own deadlines and how did you go about doing that if you did? Yes. Yeah, I think you're, you're right that there is that difference there in terms of with a PhD, we have the, the, the supervisory committee. We have a first and second supervisor. Uh, and usually the first supervisor is giving us those, those, those deadlines. So I guess I had to give myself deadlines. So in my uh, in my diary, I'd kind of, I guess once I kind of started, once I had the chapter structure, then I kind of, uh, in my diary, I, I kind of had those deadlines. This chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, uh, which weeks am I going to do that? And I think the deadlines were quite ambitious and I and I didn't fully hit those, uh, those deadlines, but I was reasonably close. So it was really uh, self-discipline knowing that uh, we don't get sabbaticals very often. Uh, and it was only a, a one-term sabbatical. So I really had to make the most of that time. And one of the things with um, sabbaticals is that it meant that term two, in term two, I had to do double teaching. So I had to do all my term one teaching in term two together with a normal term two teaching. So that meant the term two was a was a write-off when it came to doing any any writing. It was it was It was almost impossible to do uh, writing. So I really had to make the most of that uh, of that time period, knowing that I'm not going to get another sabbatical for quite a long time. Otherwise, I'd probably have to change the uh, the kind of end date of, of, the, um, of the book. You mentioned that you had a failed first attempt at a second research monograph. If you don't mind revisiting that, um, could you tell us about what that research was about and what the lessons, like the more practical lessons, apart from needing the motivation where from that attempt and whether that helped you complete this 
Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. Money. I think one of the uh, the big lessons of that was that I was trying to write two books at the same time. Uh, so I, was, um, I had a contract to write this uh, textbook uh, that became Governor Politics of, of Taiwan. And at the same time, I was trying to do this uh, research uh, book. So I guess being too ambitious is one big uh, lesson because I think you need um, that uh, that focus. And, and I was struggling because I guess that was also quite early in my academic career as well. And um, that can be a really difficult, difficult time when you first start teaching uh, new courses. And often these courses may be a little bit distant from your uh, research. So it takes much more preparation time. And I think, and I can, I'm pretty sure you noticed that when you were teaching in uh, in your third year of your PhD, how much time is actually required to prepare for classes, even if it's just uh, for tutorials. And if you're not used to, I think that reminds me, I think one of the things that's really important for junior academics is a bit of mentorship, knowing what is acceptable demands from, for example, your heads of departments and what is kind of going beyond the kind of line of, uh, of duty. And I don't... Th- so I think, yeah, I think I found my first few years as a, a junior academic quite challenging. So I think, yeah, so that was the, the, the kind of the key kind of lesson, not being too ambitious, being quite strategic in what kind of things that uh, you do in terms of your publishing, but making sure that you find time to do kind of real uh, research. And even though the book didn't come out, I think I did get some pretty good publications out of that project. So that project was looking at candidate selection in Taiwanese political parties. So in other words, how do parties choose their their election candidates and uh, and leaders and i think it was a really interesting project uh, sometimes i think about whether i will go back to that project but uh, i'm not totally totally sure but i think it it was uh, it was a really enjoyable project to look at and you've edited edited volumes you've written two research monographs now and published uh, in journals do you find that they're transferable skills or strategies when it comes to these different formats in publishing these things? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting, <laughs> interesting question. I've probably done too many ed- edited uh, volumes, if I think, uh, with, uh, with hindsight. Edited volumes have the advantages and, and disadvantages. I think one of the advantages of edited volumes is it gives you a chance to get involved in topics that are quite distant from what you would normally do. Uh, so, for example, one of my early edited volumes looked at the politics of migration, and that allowed me to kind of engage with people in in areas such as documentary studies, literature, uh, sociology, social work. Uh, so that kind of, I think that that kind of experience can broaden your uh, horizons and to kind of take you out of your political science kind of ghetto. So I think that's uh, that's really good. But they can also be quite uh, time-consuming. And a lot really depends with edited volumes on uh, the team who you're working with. So ideally, I think it's great to work with uh, a couple of other uh, hard-working co-editors. So choosing that team is is really important. In I think in one case I've I've edited on my own, and that was that was really hard work. And I probably also edited with more senior people, which again has its pros and and cons. One of the things that I'm uh, I'm doing at the moment is also working on edited projects with uh, former students. So I, I've got a couple of projects where I'm working with uh, my former uh, master students, and that is really quite enjoyable kind of helping them get those early publications out so i've had 
um, some really quite good experiences of uh, of co-editing, but they're time consuming. And I think the other issue we have is there's quite a lot of snobbishness within academic circles about edited volumes. As someone who mm. teaches, uh, I know how valuable uh, they are for uh, for teaching. And I think they're also very, very valuable to broaden our horizons and meet new people and to kind of enrich our work. I th- for me, I think it's both from editing books, but also being involved in the Taiwan Research Center, the uh, Center of Taiwan Studies. This allows me to kind of learn from different uh, disciplines. Sometimes it enriches my political science work, but I think as a, um, uh, as a scholar, uh, it makes my kind of life and work uh, much more uh, rewarding. And you mentioned feedback to the manuscript earlier. I was wondering how many people you sent the full manuscript to or individual chapters or what your strategy was for getting feedback and how you dealt with it. Because I'm presuming this is very different from when you're writing a PhD and there, there's a committee of supervisors whose duty it is, in a sense, to comment quite clo- and read the work quite closely. Yes, I think you're right that uh, the feedback process was quite different. So there's no there's no supervisor out there to kind of guide you on your draft chapters. But I think I did receive feedback in, in a number of slightly different ways. One of them, of course, was that a couple of the early publications that came, came out of this project were co-authored with Peng Yenwen. So I was getting feedback from from her on the on the early chapters, but also getting feedback from the reviewers of these journal articles and and book chapters. Another way I was getting feedback was through doing conference talks or invited uh, lectures on this project. And I think one of the things about the book is that the, the the research project is it lasts quite a long time. So I probably did about I don't know seven or eight different conference papers or invited lectures on the project. Uh, and again, that was bringing me different uh, feedback. Uh, and I did these kind of talks both in Taiwan and in, in in Europe. A further area I was getting feedback, of course, was through my field work, uh, because I was doing field work over a, a very long time period. Uh, and I could often pitch ideas that I was thinking about uh, for the book with my uh, respondents. And then the final area where I was getting feedback was, of course, through the, the book review process. So, with the uh, with this book, I had a proposal and a almost complete manuscript. So what I did for the review process was to submit the proposal uh, together with I think twelve chapters. Uh, I think I was just missing. Let me see two chapters that I didn't submit for peer review, and they were the final chapters on the 2020 election and the concluding chapter. So most of the book uh, went through review, just missing those final two chapters, and that. And th- again, that generated an, uh, another set of uh, feedback comments that I could use for uh, the final stage of revision that I did in the summer of 2020. And how did the peer review process go? One always hears stories, painful stories from academics receiving feedbacks on feedback on journal articles. Was this the same with a with a monograph, or is it different? I think it's a little bit different. I would say for a, a couple of reasons. Generally, with With book manuscripts, uh, publishers will only send out the the manuscript to review if they are pretty confident that it's going to get through review. Partly because it's it's quite difficult to find people to review book manuscripts. While with journal articles, often they will send things out 
which they'll send a lot more out to um, a review. And that's one of the reasons why with, with book manuscripts, and I, and I, can, and I say this as, as someone who's involved in, in publishing, is that we're much more likely to reject prior to review. Uh, so if we think a proposal is not going to get through or book is not going to get through review, then even if we have doubts, then I think we'll we'll turn that down. Overall, I think the reviews, um, I think I, there were two peer reviews, and overall they were very, very positive. And the main thing that I took out of them, apart from some literature suggestions, was about uh, restructuring the book slightly. And I, and I, and I think that really did uh, help uh, me getting to the the empirical chapters a little bit earlier. So I had a, um, a chapter that I basically ended up integrating into the, into the chronological empirical chapters. And I think that definitely did improve the book's uh, flow and, and structure. So that was a real benefit. But I was really encouraged by the, the tone of the, of the reviews. That's great. And how does one go about finding a publisher? And do you have any advice on looking for a publisher and writing yeah, it's, it's, a it's, book proposal it's a, it's a good a good question because or partly because I'm I'm also involved in book series editing so I, I guess I kind of look at this question a little bit differently now to when I just finished my uh, my PhD I guess one issue is going to be how do you pitch the uh, the project and often publishers want multiple things they want academic quality but they also want something that they know is going to to sell uh, ideally to libraries and beyond. So one of the things I have seen as, as a book series editor is that sometimes we can see that projects or proposals have a lot of potential academically, but we're not sure if this is a little bit too uh, narrow in focus to actually uh, sell well. So um, so I think that is an, an issue. I think coming back to the, the question about how we choose where to publish, I think that's quite important that we want to look at what kind of things have been published, for example, in this series. Does my work fit in well with this series? Do I need to adjust anything to, to be a better fit uh, for this uh, series? series? How active is that uh, series? Will that book series market uh, my work uh, well? So, so uh, in most of my publications, or book publications, I've published with, with the same publisher, with Routledge. And I did publish once uh, with a, a German publisher. But overall, my sense was that they, they, they weren't really kind of active enough in distribution. I think that's something that is, is really uh, important. Um, knowing that your book is going to be well distributed internationally. Uh, you, I think we really want to try to make sure that our work reaches as wide as possible audience. So, so just a, a final point on this question. I think one of my regrets on, on this book was that it didn't come out initially in, in paperback. And, and, and I tried all my kind of persuasive charm to persuade the publisher to go uh, straight to um, paperback. But it, in the end, it, it came out in hardback and in the hardback is, is is crazily priced, and then in a slightly in a more reasonably priced uh, ebook. Um, but that was that was one of the things that I feel a little bit uh, disappointed about. And you always stress in your teaching that Taiwan studies is of relevance to broader social science debates. Whom do you think is the book of interest for, and why? And how do you make it accessible for broader audiences? Do you have any strategies for achieving that? I know that you often in your writing also mention um, the teaching experiences you have and that it's quite clearly written, but I was wondering if you could tell our audience a little bit about it. 
Yeah, yeah. There's, there's there's a few things there within that that question. I think one of the things that I try to do to kind of broaden out the uh, the book beyond that kind of Taiwan studies uh, readership is to make sure that I'm engaging with comparative politics theories and frameworks. So essentially, what the book is is doing is answering questions that. Are central to the study of small parties and green parties, uh, and trying to apply or uh, frameworks um, that have been used for European cases onto the uh, the Taiwan case. For example, how do we explain success and failure of uh, small parties? And there, I'm engaging with some of those kind of key theoretical frameworks that look at issues such as uh, more party system factors and more party agency uh, factors. So that is one way that I'm trying to uh, reach a broader audience by engaging with those kind of comparative politics theories and 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 frameworks and core questions. The the other part of the question is about who is the book uh, for, and and ideally I would I would hope that the book is. For accessible to multiple audiences. So, of course, we have those that are interested in Taiwan's party system, Taiwan's civil society. But also, I'm hoping that it will be interesting to um, scholars of small parties uh, that aren't focused on on Taiwan. And a, a third kind of uh, readership that I'm very keen to uh, reach out to is the, is the Green Party market. In other words, people that support green parties, people that have been involved in green parties. So that's one area that I'm trying quite hard in terms of my uh, attempts to kind of market uh, the book. So I'm very keen to try to get the book reviewed in uh, green party related publications and to potentially to do talks uh, with green party uh, members. But I have to admit that I am finding that quite challenging, but I am working on that quite uh, hard. In terms of accessibility, I do engage in theory, but I'm trying not to make the theory too heavy in in the uh, in the book. So there's a kind of literature review theoretical chapter, but I don't think it's too heavy. And then in the various uh, empirical uh, chapters, again, uh, I touch upon theory, but again, it's not uh, again, it's not too. It's kind of gives me a structure. And I think uh, readers, I think, will find that there's a lot of colour and flavour in the chapters. So I do make a lot of use of things like interview quotes to kind of keep the uh, the text lively. I, I do a lot of content analysis of uh, election propaganda. So I think there are two areas where I th- there's overlap with my first book. Uh, in other words, very heavy use heavy use of interview data and also political communications data. So I think that really kind of gives a sense of the the atmosphere of the of the time, hearing the voices of activists, uh, hearing about setbacks, uh, hearing about the arguments, and of course, I think in the book. There are a lot of arguments, and I think that is one of the things that um, makes it quite a tricky thing to to write about because uh, you need to kind of deal with competing perspectives and, and and viewpoints. But I think it's really important to actually get that through in the writing. That's something I found super fascinating about the reading the book. Actually, that you weren't afraid to actually go into these factional debates and arguments and talk about how your interviewees assess the relationships to other interviewees or other factions and so on. So it doesn't read as if it was a too sanitized uh, account, but it's really, yeah, one gets a very vivid sense of the stuff that politics is about, which is also relationships and can also involve struggle. Um, Were you ever afraid that uh, some interviewers might not be happy with some of the things you include or that maybe uh, some accounts were too candid? Mm, yes, it's. 
I think it was quite important not to disguise what was going on. And I think uh, I think this is a, a common challenge to Green parties internationally. Uh, how do you deal with conflict? And often, because Green Party activists are often quite idealistic, they're not always very good at compromise. And I think that's something that we shouldn't really try to disguise. And, and I think that one of the factors in why the Green Party has not been as successful as it should have been uh, has been this struggle to deal with different perspectives and to deal with uh, conflict. And I think that's something that we kind of see quite early on in the book. When I talk about the party formation in chapter uh, three and the way that the party splits in 2014. I think if we don't really deal with the uh, the conflict, then we don't really understand why we would see that party split, because it's not really a split on ideological uh, matters. It's more a matter of personality clashes and differences in terms of strategic priorities. But I think that one of the things that I do have in the back of my mind is, will we change the approach when we do the Chinese version, because I think we're dealing with some uh, sensitive issues. And I think that at least in some of those early draft translated chapters, we have adjusted the approach uh, a little bit there. But I, I am wondering whether I'm going to lose some friends as a result of, um, of, of, of this book. I, I, yeah, we'll have to wait and uh, wait and see. And um, so my favorite chapter is probably the chapter where you talk about the faces of the Green Party and the people involved in it their biographies. And I was wondering if you could share your strategies for including this very rich interview material. Mm, do, do you mean my strategies for who I chose for the uh, the faces uh, yeah, chapter? Yeah, exactly. Partly mm. because I know you're a political scientist, SMI, and the people in our department, and we don't really have that ethnographic training, I suppose. But still, there's an element of ethnography in that book. Um, that lends it a really rich quality. And I was wondering how, how you did go about sort of including that. Yeah, I mean, that was a um, uh, a big issue because there's so many kind of figures that have been involved in the party's development. To a certain extent, it was related to who I interviewed, uh, but also who I felt had made a, a, a bigger contribution to the party uh, over those 24 years. And I'm pretty sure that in the Chinese version, the people we include probably will be a little bit, a little bit different. But I think that when, when I think about the book, but also generally my own uh, research on Taiwanese politics, it doesn't really fit that well with mainstream Taiwanese political science. It's much more political sociology, or at times maybe even political anthropology, that kind of, because there isn't really that kind of statistical focus. There is some statistics in the book, but not. Uh, it's quite kind of marginal. Um, so I think that in a way, my book probably fits better into Taiwanese sociology than it does into Taiwanese political political science. And one thing that's really remarkable and super important about the audiences you're aiming to reach is that you want this to be read by Green Party members or people involved in social movements worldwide, which seems to be a direction that a lot of scholarship is, is moving towards. Do you have any advice on how to achieve this and how... How has it gone so far uh, targeting these people? Have they have you received feedback from your research participants yet, for instance? Yes. I know that some of the um, those that feature in the book have already read the read the book. In terms of feedback, so far it's been okay, but I think I'm I'm still waiting to hear uh, more from participants. I mean, one area where I have received feedback was maybe I kind of put too much stress on the male leadership. 
so for example, some of my sections or parts are focused on uh, male leaders. So I th- the, that was one piece of feedback that uh, I received that I probably didn't put enough stress on the role of female leadership, particularly because the party has a co-convener, a male-female co-convener uh, system. Although I think I do stress that kind of gender uh, role in the in the Who Are the Green Parties chapters. In terms of reaching out to Green Parties beyond Taiwan, uh, I'm hoping to get the book reviewed in places like a number of Green Party publications. And th- that work is ongoing. So the book is currently being review-read by people in the Canadian Green Party in Global Greens for the Green Party of England and Wales. But I'm, at this stage, I'm waiting for those first Green Party reviews to, to come out. One of the things that I did was to publish a piece which looked at the Green Party's links with the England and Wales Green Party at the time of foundation in 1996. So I published that with the Green World, which is the publication for uh, the England and Wales Green Party. Just to kind of to add a, f- a further point, which is kind of a practical point, and something that I did differently from the uh, the PhD, is that I'm working much harder in terms of promoting and marketing the book than I did with the the first book. So I think that's a really important uh, lesson. That when when my first book came out, I did nothing for promotion. I just, it was published. I didn't even do a book launch. While this time I've been going promotion crazy. So this is probably, I think I've, so far I've done, I think about 10, 11, 12 um, oh, wow. book talks of different kind of versions. And I'm, so I can do a world tour. Of course, we can do this on, on, on an online <laughs> basis. And I think that that is something that if you're thinking about how to market your first book that's coming out with a PhD. I think that's really important. And I didn't get that advice with my with my first book. And and I think the issue is that there's so many academic books out there. So we really have to kind of work hard and to be really quite shameless in the way that we uh, promote our <laughs> books, particularly if their initial target is libraries. So I think doing a lot of book talks, talking to different types of audiences, getting the books reviewed, again, is another really big thing that I'm working on uh, now. So I'm trying to get the book reviewed with academic journals, but also in more uh, media or blog settings. So for example, the first review was in Taipei Times. The second review was with New Bloom. And then the third one was with a, um, a radio station in Taiwan. So I think really been active, also been active on uh, social media. So this is also the first time that I've done a, a Facebook uh, fan page for the book. So that's another kind of strategy that I'm trying. I'm not totally sure which strategies are working, but I'm just trying as as, as many as uh, as I can. And again, this also means that I'm getting uh, a new type of feedback on the book. And it's really interesting to see what kind of questions I get asked with different audiences and how I pitch the book to different audiences. So sometimes I get asked, mm-hmm. what am I going to do next? And even though I do have some ideas about what I'm going to do next, I'm still not ready to kind of uh, stop. That was a question I was going to ask you too today, actually. <laughs> oh, you mean what to do next? Yeah, exactly. Well, I suppose that, I mean, one of the things to do next is the Chinese version, which is definitely going to be a little bit different, partly because um, the Chinese version is not a single authored book. So I'm working in the first chapter, I mentioned that a big regret was that I didn't persuade Peng Yenwen to do to co-author the book because she'd worked with me on the early publications and early data collection. But I was so happy and so surprised that she agreed to work with me on the Chinese version to 
together with another former Green Party figure who you met back in 2017 when she came to uh, SOAS with that Green Party delegation. So we're working with the book as a base, the English book as a base, but then the idea is to uh, rewrite it to make it more accessible to a kind of a broader audience, but also to bring in the perspective and experiences of those two former party leaders and, and now scholars. So for me, it's quite exciting trying to create something brand new. But it also means having to kind of drop the more personal side of the book. Because I think in the book, I talk a lot about I, and I can't talk about I in a co-authored book. There already in the early chapters, there's places where we have different opinions and that we have to kind of decide what is our common position on on issues. And I think that's, that can be quite enjoyable and challenging. Could you tell us a little bit about these differences of opinion that have surface so far mm, well let me let me think of one one was about the biographical section so i think there was a a conclusion among my co-authors that we would not have these kind of standalone biographical sections partly because a lot of taiwanese readers would know about the background of these figures. While I think for many non-Taiwanese readers, they wouldn't be so familiar with uh, these figures. So it could be that could be kind of reduced. And I think the we'll, questions were also asked about who to focus on. So that's one place where we've had, uh, we're definitely making some, some adjustments. You already mentioned your approach to using theory in the book. And it's so as we have important ongoing conversations about Eurocentrism and the decolonization of the curriculum. Willem, have these had an influence on your book? And how useful were theories based on the European experience for understanding party politics in Taiwan? Yeah, that's a, it's, a, um, it's a great question. Well, there's probably there's two kind of questions there. Well, I think that we have a really big asset in the existing literature on small parties and green parties. So I think that gave gives us an opportunity to try and see, does this work for t the Taiwanese cases? To what extent do we need to adjust those theories? And, th that, and I think that's one of the things that I do, for example, in my uh, attempt to explain party change. So I'm trying to create a framework that combines two theoretical approaches that look both at the, the party system factors, for example, the role of mainstream party strategies, but also combining that with the, the party agency approach. So that was one way that I was trying to kind of engage with, with theory to create a, a slightly revised framework. But I think that uh, you're right that in terms of the uh, material we use, I think some thought needs to be put into this. But I think that with the Taiwan case, there's a pretty rich literature within Taiwanese political science that is coming out of Taiwan-based Uh, scholars. So it wasn't really so much of a uh, of a problem. And I'm using, uh, I'm relying very, very heavily on the voice of the participants and and uh, and activists. So I think that I'm pretty happy with the, that balance that I have between what is mainly Europe-based theory and then trying to translate that in a revised format to the um, uh, the Taiwan case. And how has your teaching at SOAS affected the book? You've already mentioned that the idea or your determination to write that book sort of came from a former student's request. And how SOAS, do you think, is the book? Could it have been written elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, that's a, uh, an interesting question. If I'd been pushed, I mean, one possibility would have been to do this book in a more statistical uh, way. And I think some of the work on, uh, on Green Parties does try to do that. But I think a lot of the work that uh, I was kind of referring to on international green parties was very kind of country specific and so that was 
one element. In terms of the teaching, if I think about when I started the project in 2012, this means that I've been talking about this project to SOAS students for seven, eight years. So, for example, when we talk about small parties in, in Taiwan, I would often refer to this case study. And I would often be very encouraging when my students wanted to write essays on small parties. And a fair number of my students have actually run written essays or even their dissertations on Taiwanese small parties. If I think about one of my PhD students, Tommy Kwan, who's also just submitted, he also looks at another movement party in um, uh, in in Taiwan. So it's possible there that I probably I have affected some of my students' research directions. So it's I think one of the great things about working at SOAS is that we have that kind of interactive relationship with our students. That in theory we influence the students, but the students also influence us. And and I, of course I mentioned Yuanru invite a former student inviting me to be involved in the in the project. But I've also seen how students at SOAS have actually developed this topic. So for example, I remember one of your classmates, Nchi Man, who is a, a journalist based in Hong Kong, went on to do a feature on Taiwan's elections for the TV station she was working with and ended up interviewing some of the people that I was interviewing for her election broadcast. And then I could bring that, I could kind of quote from her news report in the, um, uh, <laughs> in the book, which again, give you a sense of this kind of, this wonderful interactive relationship between staff and students at SOAS. And I think that is definitely one of the things that helps motivate us to work at, at SOAS because, of course, SOAS isn't a perfect institution. There are a lot of, of challenges to work in at, at SOAS. But when I, th- I think when we're in the classroom or when we're engaging with students, we often forget about the, the various organizational problems that we have in this wonderful university. Yeah, that's something I can definitely confirm. And I mean, I personally also wouldn't be working on, on Taiwan if I hadn't encountered you as a master's student in that. Same year. So, and thinking about that, I mean that, I mean, that gives us a sense of the the time frame that that I started this project the year before you first came to uh, SOAS as a as a master student, and a, mm. a lot of water's got under the bridge since since then. And so, one thing that's also quite that could present a challenge, I would imagine, is that some of your field work was done from a distance in a sense or wasn't really feedback but you also interviewed people from afar in the most recent election i believe how did you go about doing that and i'm supposing that's something that will become more and more common in the post-covid era but video chat maybe just wasn't as widely used uh, a year ago or as accepted so how did you go about doing research from afar yes the the fieldwork was, I mean, one thing that made the fieldwork different from the first book was that it was done over a long time period. So it meant that I was also interviewing the same people uh, multiple times over that, the, the seven years, which I think also added to the, the quality of the analysis. While with the, with the, often with PhD fieldwork, we have a very limited time frame to get those interviews done, often within a, a, a few uh, months. And it was, it was only really for the, in the final stage the writing stage that I had to do interviews online, partly because I didn't want to go to Taiwan during that final election. Because if I went there, I probably wouldn't have been able to have that kind of the focus that I needed for for writing. Overall, I was quite happy with the the quality of the online uh, interviews. So of course, it's not quite the same. With Green Party interviews, often they were quite long and uh, relaxed, often over beer. 
I, I didn't drink any beer uh, in interviews <laughs> in my first book with mainstream party politicians. But there was a lot more beer drunk for this this book. So I, I guess I, I missed the, the beer side doing online uh, interviews. And I think also... One of the things I found with the online interviews was because they were done while I was writing the book, sometimes I would feel like I had something missing. And so some of my online interviews in the in the final stage did actually refer back to different different chapters or different periods. But I'm really glad that most of the of the of the work that was done for the book much of the most of the interviews were done in, in person in terms of either in focus groups, supporter interviews or face-to-face interviews, which really, I mean, I think that this was such an enjoyable project to to uh, to work on. The the I think if when we often look back on our, our PhD uh, years, I think a lot of us, I think uh, I don't know whether you would agree that would would be that the best period was that fieldwork year. But um, in this case, agree. I could have the fieldwork tended to be quite short, often one or two probably maybe one month a year over this uh, seven, eight year time period. So in a way, I guess, thinking about it, it's a little bit like doing a part-time PhD, but having that constant fieldwork to look forward to each each year. And one challenge I presume you dealt with, with, which I also faced working on Hong Kong, where the situation has kept evolving rapidly in recent years, was working on something that's just changing and on something that's ongoing rather than a more just an historical event or campaign. So how did you deal with that? Do you have any best practices that you can share with an audience to deal with an unfolding situation or election campaign when doing research? Yeah, I, mean, I guess with this project, one of the areas where things are changing is the popularity of the party, which is which is constantly changing with election uh, results. So I think one of the, the big questions was, would the party break through, for example, in national elections in 2016, when it looked quite quite likely? And questions, of course, were raised about, because the party wasn't able to get into national parliament, should I drop the project? Is it just not important enough? And, and one of the things I try to argue in the book is that explaining failure is as interesting as, as explaining success. And... Uh, if, if we think, for example, about the British Labour Party, there's so much is, is written on its setbacks in 1983, I think, 1983. Similarly, the British Green Party took a long time to get into Parliament, but multiple books have been written on, on that case. And what I try and argue is that that failure was never inevitable. And I tried to talk about how the party could have been more successful if a different set of strategies had been adopted. Could you tell us a little bit more about this and what uh, parties, green parties elsewhere can learn from Taiwan? Uh, yes. Um, yeah, I think it's a, a, um, a, good, a good question. When I first started this project, one of the things that we wanted to do together with Professor Pong Yilwen was to come up with some practical suggestions about how the Green Party could improve its campaign performance. But somehow I never really did that until the final chapter of uh, of this book. And I think that there are lessons both for the Taiwan Green Party, but also I think there's common uh, lessons and challenges for international Green Parties. For example, uh, I think one of the key things that we can take from this book is the importance of online campaigning and the way that online campaigning does offer smaller or weaker, less well-funded parties an opportunity to actually get their message across in contexts where campaigning is very expensive. Uh, so, for example, in Taiwan, small parties can't really afford to buy TV advertising 
which is just so expensive. But they can compete with using social media tools, for example. And and that's one of the ways that the Taiwan Green Party has been able to kind of reach broad audiences, even when it doesn't have that organizational foundation. But I also look at other areas such as, I think one of them we've touched upon today is dealing with conflict and, and how you you able to kind of contain diverse perspectives within a, a Green Party and avoid party splits, uh, which again, I think is a, a common challenge to international Green Parties. How parties balance their idealism with the practical side of winning votes. And and uh, and often I would argue that the, the party has struggled to get that, that balance right. This kind of competition between the social movement focus and uh, winning elections. At times, the party has focused too much on one of the uh, the other. And again, I think that's a common challenge. Another challenge has been the relationship between the party and the uh, most proximate mainstream party. So in in a European context, that would be the relationship between the Green Party and probably a social democratic party or the Labour Party, for example, in the in the UK. So a constant challenge for the Taiwan Green Party has been, how do you actually manage that relationship, both between it and the DBP, which is the proximate pro-environmental mainstream party, but also between it and other uh, movement parties? And, and, a, and a last thing that I would mention is improving party organisation, creating party branches, having a presence on the ground and not just relying on social media and campaigning. So these are all things that, that I suggest at the end as, as lessons for the uh, the Green Party. But I think they have practical uh, relevance to international Green Parties as well. You've already mentioned that you are currently promoting the book and have not yet started your work on a third research monograph. But I was wondering if you were to start a third research monograph, what are key lessons you take away from this book? Mm, well, I think firstly, as with the um, the PhD, finding a topic that that I feel passionate and enthusiastic about, partly because it's going to take so long to uh, to complete. So it's got to be something that I feel excited about. And uh, so I think that's a, a first thing. A second thing, I think, is being very clear on the big questions and puzzles that I'm going to deal with, making sure that these can engage with academic literature and uh, debate. So I can kind of talk about this project with both those interested in Taiwan, but also beyond Taiwan. So at the moment, I'm not going to rush into this uh, next decision, even though the, the publisher that I work with is uh, encouraging me, for example, to go for a, a third edition of the Government Politics <laughs> in Taiwan book. Uh, I'm not quite ready for uh, that yet. And I have a, a few kind of ideas in terms of um, uh, what kind of project to, to work on. But I'd also like to try and kind of go back to a few projects that I've held, that I've put to the side during the uh, the writing of this book. For example, I had a project looking at uh, the way that Taiwanese cinema portrays democracy in Taiwan. That's something that I'd like to kind of go back to, probably not in book form, but in a, a kind of a journal article form. But I'm pretty sure probably by next year, I'll have some idea about the next big project. But I'm pretty sure that, it, again, it still will be something that's somehow linked to the... So to a certain extent, 
it's quite hard for us to fully get out of the uh, the shadow of that uh, of that first book. There's often that that uh, that linkage there, and it was something that that cropped up quite a bit in an edited volume that I did called Taiwan Studies Revisited, where people talk about their early publications on Taiwan that often come out of their PhDs, and the way that it can be very hard to kind of have a clean break from that first book. Sometimes we achieve it, but it can, often can be a struggle. Thanks very much, David. That was super insightful. Fantastic, Leon. Thanks for all those amazing questions. I think we kind of managed to get through quite a lot of um, uh, maybe more questions than than uh, than I expected. 